Hello again and welcome to another episode of the Ominous Origins Podcast with me, Casey. Of course, this episode is still brought to you by the wonderful people over at MorbidlyBeautiful.com. Morbidly Beautiful is your one-stop shop for all things horror pop culture related, from interviews, reviews, top ten lists, and everything in between. I highly suggest go browsing them while you're listening to this episode now, and check out their extensive library of podcasts as well when you're done with this one. There's a bunch of great ones up there. I highly suggest all of them. One last thing before I kick off into this week's episode is I want to let you know that I will be releasing something in the near future. I don't have an exact date, but it's a collaboration with Morbidly Beautiful, and it is a book of sorts. It has some fiction elements to it and also has some photography, so if that's something that interests you, be sure to keep an eye out on social media and my website and Morbidly Beautiful and the podcast itself. So now with all that housekeeping out of the way, I do apologize, let's just get right into it. About two weeks ago, I started looking into a case called the Wanda Beach Murders, then promptly left you with a cliffhanger that I didn't answer last week because I didn't get an episode out. Yeah, that's my bad, It's my bad. But this week, I will conclude the investigation into what happened to Marianne Schmidt and Christine Sherrock. But first, a recap. Yeah, yeah, I know. Everybody's favorite thing to skip when a new season hits Netflix. But too bad. The quick rundown of what happened was that Marianne Schmidt, four of her younger siblings, and their friend Christine Sherrock wanted to make a day of hanging out at Wanda Beach in Australia. It was their favorite spot, but due to weather being terrible that day, the beach was closed, and so they had to make the best of a bad situation and find a part of the beach that they could get into. They did. They had fun. They hiked, they picnicked, and then Marianne and Christine left on their own to get their belongings and were never seen again. That eh, wasn't so bad, was it? Considering it was a recap. But now it's time for what happens next. This is the investigation into the Wanda Beach murders. Ominous. Ominous. It is an adjective. Sounds like someone breathing. Ominous. When we last left off, we came across Peter Smith, who happened to be taking a walk in the same area that the girls were more or less last seen and that's where he made a grisly discovery. What he originally thought was a mannequin arm turned out to be human. The police were called, and the investigation kicked off into high gear. Mr. Smith thought he had found a mannequin arm, which turned out to be a real one, which was quickly discovered to be two different bodies altogether. What a day. When the scene was examined, Schmidt was found lying on her right side with her left leg bent. Sherrick was face down, her head against the sole of Schmidt's left foot. Both had scratch marks on their faces, presumably left from a 34 meter or 112 foot long drag mark leading to the scene. Police determined that Sherrick had fled, possibly while Schmidt was dying or already dead, only to have been caught, incapacitated, and eventually dragged back to the body of her friend. It's quite a long drag of a, a body, I must say. An intensive search was undertaken to find the murder weapon, a long knife and some sort of blunt instrument, but they were never found. 
tons and tons of sand from around the murder scene was sifted through and various items were found, including a blood-stained knife, but police were unable to link it to the murders because, as I said, Australia in the 60s was a terrible, terrible place. I mean, how often do you come across a double homicide, find a bloody knife and go, nah, not for this murder? It's just crazy. It's insanity to me. Later during the autopsy for Sherrick, they found a blood alcohol content of 0.015, but alcohol was not found in Schmidt's autopsy. It was also discovered that Sherrick had consumed food, cabbage and celery, possibly a chico roll, that was different from the rest of the party. It is suspected this occurred when she was alone. Remember, last week, Christine Sherrick went off on her own for a little bit. I assumed or presumed that she went to go pee. It's a fair enough assumption, I think. But it looks like she went off for a little nip to get a little drinky drink without the rest of the crowd knowing, which again is fair, I suppose. It was also discovered that Sherrick's skull had been fractured by a blow to the back of the head, and she had been stabbed 14 times. Schmidt's throat had been deeply slashed, and she had been stabbed 6 times. Their underwear had been cut, and attempts had been made to rape both girls. Semen was indeed found on both of the girls, but the autopsy showed that their hymens were still intact. Schmidt's brother Hans unfortunately had viewed the photos of her body and said, quote, She was stabbed 25 to 30 times. She'd almost been decapitated because her throat had been cut so viciously. This has to be one of the worst utterances in human history, especially when talking about a family member. It's just terrible. Of course, in cases like these, people are sort of hypervigilant and you begin to notice things that you might otherwise not. During Sherrick's absence, Wolfgang noticed a teenage boy hunting crabs. Later, he claimed to have seen the same boy twice more, once in the company of his sister and Sherrick, and again, sometime much later, walking alone. There has been doubt about his description, as Wolfgang's testimony, over time, variously suggested he had a homemade spear gun, a fishing knife, or both. In other words, his story changed, and the description of the boy changed with it. The last official sighting of Schmidt and Sherrick was around 1245 by local fireman Dennis Dostein, who was walking in the area with his son, and he saw the girls walking about three quarters of a kilometer away, give or take, north of the surf club. Dostein told police that they seemed to be hurrying and one of the girls often looked behind her as if they were being followed. He did not see anybody else. There had been a number of people seen in the area who were never identified and never came forward. Now I don't want to shit on Dostein here, but as a fireman shouldn't you have an instinct about a situation like that? Surely you have some kind of training. I'm pretty sure even volunteer firefighters have some degree of training, and seeing two girls hastily making their way across the sandhills alone in terrible weather, appearing to be scared, should have sent something off in him to intervene. I mean, nobody expects the worst, obviously. Nine out of ten people would do the same thing Dennis did, and just think to themselves, oh, that's sort of weird, and get on with their lives, and never think about it again. And in retrospect, it's easy to think that if only you had done something, those girls would have been alive. But not all of us are first responders. 
It's a shame, in my opinion, that he didn't do more, even if he did have his kid with him. But hey, that's just me. Not long after the discovery of the bodies, the funeral took place. The funerals were held on January 20th, and a 10,000 Australian pound reward was posted in February, which was later converted to $20,000 Australian in 1966, which stood unchanged as of August 2002. In April 1966, the coroner handed down his report, by which time police had interviewed some 7,000 people, making it the largest investigation in Australian history. Despite this, the murders quickly became a cold case, and none of the three main suspects, who we'll get to in a moment, fit the description of the surfer youth who had never been identified. The case was indeed reopened in 2000, and in February of 2012, the new South Wales Police Force Cold Case Unit announced, Jesus Christ, New South Wales Police Force Cold Case Unit, say that 10 times fast, uh, they announced that a weak male DNA sample had been extracted from a pair of white shorts worn by Sharak. While admitting that current technology was unable to provide more, police were confident that future advances would give more assistance. In July 2014, police said that a semen sample taken from Schmidt's body had been lost and could not be located despite extensive searches. Naturally, of course. Why does this always seem to happen? Dude comes out waving a bag of evidence in his hand saying, Oh hey guys, we have DNA for one of the biggest and most infamous cases in our country's history. Let's set- Oh shit, I lost it. That's how I pictured anyway. Some dope misplacing it like it's his fucking car keys or something. It's evidence in a murder investigation. How is that shit not on lockdown 24-7? I, I don't want to get into it any more than that. Let's just get on to some more of the important stuff. Like how that guy hopefully lost his job. And that whole department was fired. Nevertheless, anyway, I digress. The reason you are really here. You want to know more about the suspects. There were three main suspects in the case at the time. But sadly, there wasn't really enough evidence to convict any of them. Oh, and we'll also get to the Beaumont kids connection. Finally, which I mentioned last episode couple of times at least. The first and really the biggest or main suspect of the case was a man called Alan Bassett, who was of particular interest to SEC, check, SES, CEC, I'm not sure how to say it. We'll go with SEC Johnson. SEC Johnson was a former detective who had investigated the murders, was given a painting in 1975 by Alan Bassett. Bassett had been jailed for murdering Caroline Orphan, a 19-year-old woman in June of 1966. She was attacked, raped, strangled, and then her skull was crushed with a rock. He was sent to prison for life. He served 29 years before being released in 1995. The painting titled, A Bloody Awful Thing, showed an abstract landscape. Johnson believed the painting showed blood trails, a broken knife blade, and the body of a victim, and Johnson became convinced that Bassett was the Wanda Beach killer. He also became convinced that it showed a scene from the murder that only the killer would know, as well as clues to the also unsolved murders of Kruger and Dalinkoa, 
and we'll get to those in a minute as well. Despite the skepticism of other detectives, Johnson wrote a book about the case. Before it could be published, however, he was killed in an accident. Other detectives, while retaining professional respect for Johnson, concluded that he was wrong in his belief, which is kind of a dick move. You know, follow it up. Keep an eye out, at least. In any unsolved case, can you really afford to rule anything out? This might be another case of detectives trying to fit the evidence into their own narratives. You see in those high-profile wrong conviction cases a lot, like the West Memphis Three, Anyway, if you're a good investigator, you won't do that. The evidence forms the theory, not the other way around. And I'm not speaking for my ass, remember I used to be a PI. One person Johnson convinced, however, was Daily Mirror crime reporter Bill Jenkins. Jenkins repeated Johnson's claims in his ghost-written memoirs as crime goes by, devoting a whole chapter to the Wanda Beach murders. Most of the chapter was essentially a repeat of what he had written in his earlier book, crime reporter, but he mentioned Johnson, Bassett, and the painting as well. Bassett commenced proceedings for a defamation lawsuit in the Supreme Court of New South Wales, which he was entitled to do after the attainder rule was abolished by the Felons Act in 1981. Although given his history of mental illness, the proceedings were commenced by the protective commissioner as his tutor. After ruling on the form and capacity of the imputations, Bassett versus Ironbark Press in 1994, the publisher pleaded defense of justification, Bassett being a convicted murderer, and the proceedings never went further. Since his release, Bassett had voluntarily given DNA samples to Clear's name, but whether or not he has been eliminated as a suspect via DNA is yet to be published. Boy, it sure would be nice if they had those samples they found on the shorts way back in the, the day, but uh... But no. No, sadly, somebody misplaced them with their car keys. Ugh, that's pissing me off. Bachelor number two, well, I assume these guys are bachelors because even though they weren't convicted of these particular murders, they were still pieces of shit. So who in the balls would actually marry them? Especially this next guy whose class act crimes includes goddamn gang rape. Yeah, real catch right there. His name was Christopher Wilder, and I'm going to go on another rant very shortly about this guy. Two years prior to the Wanda Beach murders, he had been convicted of a gang rape on a Sydney beach, which led police to include him as a suspect. Wilder later emigrated to the United States in 1969, where he embarked on a series of serial killings in the early 1980s. While visiting his parents in Australia in 1982, Wilder was charged with sexual offenses against two 15-year-old girls, whom he had forced to pose nude. Mm -hmm. He fled back to the United States, and in the first half of 1984, he committed eight more murders and attempted several more. Wilder accidentally killed himself during a struggle with police in New Hampshire on April 13th, 1984 real solid dude there. How the fuck does that happen? I mean, honestly, I'm not one for the death penalty, but I'm all for life in prison, which begs the next question. Why the hell isn't gang rape a life sentence? Come on. Moreover, how does somebody convicted of gang rape emigrate to another country, especially the United States? Ugh, I'm sorry. 
But this is why I don't do true crime too often. I get all riled up that douche canoes like Wilder exist, and equally as douchey political bureaucracy exists that allows people like Wilder to continue his crime sprees. Or the failure of the system. Or even a single person. Hell, look at the ineptitude of the officers that encountered Jeffrey Dahmer. Saw a guy running down the street, bleeding, I think, before Dahmer was like, oh, he's my friend, I'm having him for dinner, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, and the cops were like, okay, have it, it, oh, It's infuriating. Actually, those cops said some truly vile shit, if I remember correctly, but that's not really relevant here. It's just yet another true crime rant. However, after Wilder, there wasn't much to go on. In fact, it wasn't until 1998 that there was another solid lead in the case. Well, as solid as there could be in this particular case 30-something years later. His name was Derek Percy, and he had been imprisoned since 1969 for the murder of a child on a beach in Victoria. Percy was considered too dangerous to be released, and is the prime suspect for a number of other murders of children in Melbourne and Sydney. But he died in 2013 from cancer. He was considered a leading suspect for the Wanda Beach murders by police. While Percy can be linked to the location and date of the murders, there were no other links found. It was hoped he would make a confession on his deathbed, but that never came. You see what I mean about Australia being a garbage place for kids to live in the 60s? It's a bit nuts that there were this many people out there killing kids on beaches. Beaches! These are very, very public places, and it's just, it's just crazy, I can't wrap my head around it. But with Percy, Wilder, and Bassett came the connection to other unsolved crimes in the area, and even some that were solved, but couldn't be linked to the perpetrator involved. First off, we have the Beaumont Kids, which I've mentioned a few times. This one took place in 1966 and was a national and international sensation. The similarities between the Beaumonts and the Wanda Beach killings are striking. A group of kids travel alone to a beach by bus and or train, only to be never seen again. Except with the Beaumont kids, there were a few witnesses, but they turned out to be pretty unreliable. Like the fact that a local mailman said he seen them on their street around 3pm, something like that. But he later said it might not have been that day, or it might have even been that morning. So, yeah, not super helpful. The case even saw a psychic come in, and I hate psychics. They are so harmful to investigations. Nevertheless, it's an insane and sad case that was never solved. Three kids, no older than nine, just gone. Now, earlier I mentioned that Bassett was linked to two murders that were never solved. The first on Saturday, January 29th, 1966, a 56-year-old cleaning lady named Wilhelmina Kruger was killed in the Piccadilly Center on Crown Street in Wollongong. I don't know if I'm saying that right, but here we go. Her bloody body was discovered around 5.45 a.m. at the foot of the basement level stairs by a butcher who arrived for work. Having been first assaulted three floors above, probably around 4.30 a.m., she had been brutally dragged down the escalators and stairs. She was then strangled, stabbed, mutilated, and was eventually found naked from the chest down. 
Police also found cigarette burns in her clothing, and blonde hair was found at the scene. In the time prior to the murder, Kruger had become nervous that someone was watching her, and had been driven to work by her partner. Similarly, the lights in the car park within the center had shown recent signs of tampering, and had been tampered with again on the morning of the murder. It is considered one of the most brutal attacks in the history of the state. The case remains unsolved. However, at the time, police believed that the murder might have been the work of the Wanda Beach killer, but they would not say why. I'll touch on that again in a second. And the second one that I mentioned before happened on around midnight on Wednesday, February 16th, 1966, when a 27-year-old shop assistant and prostitute from Bondi named Anna Toskoya Doyalinkoa went missing after leaving a nightclub in King's Cross. Ten days later, around 5.30 on the 26th of February, her semi-naked, strangled, stabbed, and mutilated body was found by a truck driver who had stopped on the side of Old Iwara Road in Menai to change a tire. Most of Anna's clothes and belongings were missing, and drag evidence showed that her body had been moved to a more visible location around three or four days prior to the discovery. Police immediately linked her to the brutal Jack the Ripper-like murder with that of Kruger, and investigators from that crime were called in to assist. They believed that the murder might have been the work of the Wanda Beach killer, primarily based on circumstantial evidence in the modus operandi, or the MO, as most people know it as. In my opinion, those are precariously linked to Wanda Beach at best. From an outside perspective, without looking at any evidence and just going on the summaries, I don't see how they're linked. Most serial killers, not all, but most, have their types. It would be very strange for a killer to rape and or murder children, then go and do the same to somebody else in their 20s and 50s, unless they got in their way or something. But it seems like these were premeditated, especially in the case of Kruger, who felt she was being watched, and then the parking lot lights being tampered with. To me, and while I was a PI, I wasn't one for very long, and I never investigated a murder, obviously it seems as though Wanda Beach was an attack of opportunity. Chances are the kids weren't stalked from home to beach, on the trains and so on. More likely the culprit spotted a group of unattended kids on a secluded part of a beach and waited for his chance to strike. Though there is the fact that Sherrick did leave by herself for a brief time while the group were on the beach, like I said in the last episode, she probably just went to go pee or something, or as we discovered this episode, she had some alcohol in her system, so she probably went off for a little nip by herself, something like that. But you can't rule anything out. And maybe, just maybe, like a 1% chance she went to go meet somebody and actually had a role to play in the murder of Schmidt and ultimately herself. Why would her co-conspirator kill her too? Because he's a child murderer. Do you really need any other reason than that? In the end, there has been at least one follow-up in the Daily Mail, claiming there is a man currently in jail for sexually abusing his daughter, who confessed to his girlfriend in the 70s that he was the Wanda Beach killer. However, they never released his name, so the credibility is meh at best. And it's the Daily Mail. 
So, yeah. Take that for what you will. Ultimately, this case will likely never be solved. There's a good chance the person who did it is dead, is in prison, or is really old at this point. Uh, prior to DNA evidence, I really don't know how crimes were definitively solved. And it makes me wonder how many innocent people were put away simply because they fit the mold or the narrative of a detective or something along those lines. I know I shit on mistakes made that cause people to walk, and yes, I know, life as a cop slash detective is never easy, especially 50 years ago, but in the end, it's your job to have instincts about people and to follow certain protocols. Go back to the firemen, and we can look at what happened after Sec died. The investigation in Bassett almost stopped. It seemed like a pretty solid lead to me. It's sad to think about, really. These kids having their lives snuffed out just after they had their first kisses. At least they got that. Like I said, I don't like doing true crime because it pisses me off that people can get away with this stuff. I'm very passionate about it, which is why you might notice the quality of these episodes to be a little bit better than my standard stuff. It's also why I refuse to turn this thing into a full-on true crime podcast. I'd probably lose my mind. But with that said, thank you for listening. With the holiday season coming up, I probably won't be too consistent with uploads, and I'm sorry. We all need a little break once in a while, and with the crazy COVID times, who knows what's going to happen. So if I don't see you, happy holidays, stay safe, and be thankful for all you have. My name is Casey, and this has been the Ominous Origins Podcast. If you like what you heard, feel free to leave a review on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your episodes. All five-star reviews will be read out on the show, so it's a great way to get a shout-out. Be sure to follow along on social as well, on Twitter at HorrorShotsProd, as in production, Facebook at HorrorShots, where you can also leave a review, and if it's five stars, it will be read, or on Instagram at OminousOriginsPod. Lastly, if you do want to support the show financially, you can do so by visiting my Patreon or Redbubble store in the description. Maybe pick up a pretty cool gift for Christmas for your... Ominous Origins listener fan. I'd need a name for fans. If there are any fans. Anyway, until next time.